1: Good morning, good morning. It's good to see you guys. Welcome, glad you're here. For those online, hello. So it's a very age-old question. Lots of people have tried to solve it, and I don't know if anybody's really answered it, although maybe you have an opinion one way or the other. Are great leaders born, or are they made? The great people that like impact the world, are they born, or are they made? Take a look in the sports world. The greatest basketball player of all time, Michael Jordan, don't you, there you go, don't you even argue with me, it's not okay, yeah, yeah. Born or made? You look at artists, again, my humble but accurate opinion, Vincent Van Gogh, the most, tra- most transformative artist ever, born or made? You get to songwriters, again, you can argue with me, but I'm right, Paul McCartney, greatest songwriter, there. it was really interesting there, that was more divisive than I thought it was going to be. Paul McCartney, is he born that way or made that way? Hmm. I'd like to ask the same question maybe of the Apostle Peter, born or made that way. Peter was this hard rock, roughly chiseled, far from finessed, impossibly unpolished. And reading through the Gospels, like I just love how Peter just makes one mistake after another. He's just this walking gaff machine. He just always says the wrong thing at the wrong time. I find it so interesting, don't you, that the first thing that Jesus says to Peter, there on the shore with fishing nets in hand, out of nowhere this Galilean carpenter turned rabbi sees Peter and he says, follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. It's an invitation to be formed, an invitation to be made into something more than he can make himself. And it's an invitation that Peter would take and then fight with for the rest of his life. So here's what I think. Um, I think most of us are in the same kind of a spot. We see things that are wrong with our world. We may be grieved by those things that are wrong with our world, but we don't know where to start. Yard signs don't change the world. Articles don't, and arguments don't. And so... We do kind of the natural thing, we sit on our couches, we flip through our phones, we try our best to be nice and behave, and our world goes by unchanged and we get frustrated. So where do you start if you want to make a difference in your world? Well, we're rounding third in our summer teaching series through 1 Peter. We're headed for home, and here's where we're going this morning. 30 years after Jesus' initial invitation on the shore, Peter is now writing to a group of churches who are exactly where he once was and maybe where you might find yourself this morning, eager to make a difference, desperate for clarity, but unsure where to start. So where we're going to be this morning is 1 Peter chapter 4. You can turn there, flip there, scroll there. You can follow along on the screens behind me. This text divides neatly in half. The first half is like the negative of a photograph. And the second half is like the positive of a photograph, for those of you who know what film is. <laughs> and as somebody who's been changed by Jesus, here's what Peter wants us to know. Here's where he's driving his point. If you want to make a difference, you've got to be made different. If you want to make a difference, you've got to be made different. So let's get to it. First Peter chapter 4, verse 1. First two words, he says, since therefore, stop right there. Peter's wrapping his arms around something that he's already said. He's about to make his point. It turns out Peter's just like every other preacher when they say finally or in closing, like they have no intention of actually closing. He's got two more chapters left, so he's not done yet, but he's reaching back and he's saying, since therefore, and what's he reaching back to? He's saying, since Jesus suffered. Here's what he says. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves. He's talking to church. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. This is Peter reaching back a few verses where we were last week. Chapter 3, verse 18. The idea that suffering for the sake of the gospel, suffering willingly, joyfully, eagerly, is a theme that Peter artfully weaves through this entire letter. And at the risk of oversimplifying, here's his point. If you say you want to follow Jesus, you might have to actually follow Jesus. We talk about this a lot, but it's interesting how in Christian circles and in churches, so often we lead with the gospel benefits first. You ever notice that? Sounds like this. Don't want to go to hell? Give your life to Jesus. You want to be free from fear? Give your life to Jesus. You want to have your best life now? Give your life to Jesus. By the way, if you should have that book, burn it. And Peter's here going, no, 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 no. That's not how this thing works. Since therefore Christ suffered, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. A gospel that leads benefits first has no category for suffering And it's useless. Suffering is not an unfortunate wrinkle in God's plan. More often, suffering is the means by which God accomplishes his plan. And so here's Peter saying, since it's true that Christ suffered, and just so we're clear, if you don't believe that, you're not saved. The Christian faith is built on the seemingly ludicrous idea that our Savior suffered. And if you buy that, then this. And he says, then arm yourself. That's the imperative. That's the command. And what we would expect here, by the way, I think it's interesting when Peter talks about arming yourself. Is there any scene in the Gospels that comes to mind for you? You think Peter in the garden. That's where I go, right? Since Christ suffered, Peter in the garden, pick up a sword, whack off a soldier's ear, fire it up, let's go. He says, no. He says, since he suffered, arm yourself, With the same way of thinking. That's interesting. What does that mean? If understanding the sufferings of Christ are the basis for understanding my suffering in this world, how did Jesus suffer? And in case you forgot, here's the picture. Just listen to this. This is from Isaiah 53. Speaking of Jesus before anybody knew his name. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. That's our leader. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. That's our master. That's the pattern we follow. Arm yourself with... That. That way of thinking? Like, (laughs) I don't think so, Peter. And as if sensing my inner need to protest, like, Peter, this can't be right. Like, I'll follow Jesus, but I will not go that far, Peter. And Peter goes, all right, let me make sure you hear me right. Let me make sure you get my point. Here's why you might need to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Arm yourself with the same way of thinking. Verse 1 again. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That's a very curious phrase. What does he mean? And we've got to get this because it's the key that unlocks the whole rest of this text. Here's what's going on. Peter ties my willingness to suffer for the gospel to freedom from sin. Now, does that mean that if I just suffer, my sins are atoned for? That like, My suffering somehow makes up something that's lacking in in Christ's afflictions? No, of course not. Here's what that means. You will never willingly suffer for something unless you deeply love it. You will never suffer for something until you are profoundly thankful for it. The only way that I'm ever going to willingly suffer for Christ is because I love Jesus more than I love my sin. Willingness to suffer is the evidence, the proof, that Brandon Marshall has broken up with his old self. (laughs) Willingness to suffer for the sake of the gospel is the greatest evidence that we've been changed, which prompts him to say in verse 2, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, that means the rest of your life, post-conversion. How do you live the rest of your life? No longer for human passions, which include my own, but for the will of God. Peter's getting at my motivation, and I don't like that. (laughs) I like living for myself. Peter says, no, you can't do that. It's too short-sighted. Peter's saying, willingly embracing suffering purifies my motivation. A gospel that is about what I get out of it is not the gospel because it misses Jesus and it doesn't prepare me for suffering. So that's where Peter starts. If you had to summarize that, buckle up. Get ready. Speaking of human passions, Peter is about to get specific. And so, what follows is a list of six vices, six examples, right, that embody the life that they have left. And buckle up because this list is just wonderful. Verse three For the time that is past, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. That is, people who don't know Jesus is how he's using that word Gentiles. Now, what is he talking about? Here's the list. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So, six words... Three have to do with sex, two have to do with alcohol, and one has to do with worship. So think Animal House, Jersey Shore, and Game of Thrones all in like first century Rome. Okay? That's where we're going. Now what is he talking about and why is this portrait so important? Let's get a handle on all six of these. Okay, we're gonna get a look at them. It's gonna get a little hot in here and you'll be fine. Okay. First one, sensuality. Your translation might say licentiousness. Say licentiousness. Isn't it fun? Not like, no, licentiousness is not fun. The word is fun. And I like the word because it's a word that sounds as dirty and terrible as it actually is. Um, what it means is living with no moral restraint. That's what that means. No seatbelt. No guardrails on the road. Just wide open throttle. The second word is passions. Now, is he saying you shouldn't be passionate? No, This one looks a little deeper, saying, after I've thrown off the moral restraint of my life, what's driving my behavior? And the answer is, whatever I darn well feel like doing. That's what drives my behavior. This is no one's the boss of me kind of living, just a perpetual moral toddler. And then Peter gets unexpectedly and a little alarmingly specific. He says, drunkenness. Now this one is actually pretty self-explanatory. This word is only used here in the New Testament, though, and it literally means to be so saturated with something that useless stuff is coming out of your mouth. Literally translated, it means wine bubbles. That, like, just bleh. It's a great one. Fourth word, orgies. Well, that escalated quickly. Nothing like coming to church hearing about that. So here's what this is. In first century Rome, this is actually a pretty common thing. Festal gatherings, pagan holidays, were often linked with religiously toned sex parties. Here's how this worked. At the festival, if you want to be a good Roman, you'd pay your tithe of incense at the temple, half to Caesar, half to the gods, and you would enter the temple and you'd have sex with a prostitute. The more devoted you were, the more prostitutes you would seek out, and that meant that you were pleasing to the gods. That's what Peter has in view here. Fifth word is drinking parties. Now that is everything we just said privatized. That's saying everything that just happened in the temple, come on over to my house because the after party is going to be better and bring a few friends. The sixth word, lawless idolatry. Peter caps off this delightful little list with this last phrase for a really important reason. And this gets to the core of the issue and why this list is just as relevant for us in 2022 North Canton Chapel as it might be in first century Rome. Do you know what idolatry is? We think it's like golden calves and temple prostitutes and stuff like that. Yeah, but that's not all it is. Idolatry is where I take anything else and I put it in place of where Jesus should be in my life. When I do that... When I put my hope in something else to deliver me, I become an idolater. And you probably don't have a golden calf set up in your living room, but we've all got idols in our hearts. I've got mine, and you've got yours. So this is the picture of the world that Peter's readers would have left. They knew what all this was because many of them had lived it. This wasn't theory for them. This was like last year before they came to Christ. Peter holds up the rearview mirror of their past, not to shame them, but to invite them. Remember who you were? That time is past. We're done with that now. Come this way. Quick poll anybody else thankful that you are not now who you used to be? Anybody else thankful that Jesus is making you into something that you could not make yourself? Anybody else thankful that all that other stuff in our multiplied, dark past is gone? This is just good gospel truth. Jesus is making me different so I can make a difference. But then born out of that, we're still on the negative side of the photograph here, Peter paints a very sobering picture of what life will then probably be like for these believers. He says... With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Three things. They're surprised at you, they'll malign you, but they'll eventually have to give an account to God. Now, those three points are really sobering, but also really comforting. Here's what that means for us in 2022. Just get this out of the text a little bit the world is going to think you're weird because of the things that you will do and the things that you will not do born out of love for Christ. You're going to be weird. Second thing, that weirdness is going to lead to a malign, which if you want to contextualize that, it just means people are going to be annoyed with you at best, and then that annoyance is going to boil over into hatred at worst. But then the third point that we've got to get you are not your vindicator. God is. That's a very important point for us to remember. And then Peter closes this whole first section by driving straight to our greatest need the gospel in verse 6. He says, This is why, you can hear him just like pleading. This is why. The gospel was preached even to those who are dead. What he means there is your Christian brothers and sisters, your family members, the people in your church who have accepted Christ are saved and then have since died. They had the gospel preached to them that though judged in the flesh the way people are, as if to say, yeah, because life can be judgy. People are going to look at you with a raised eyebrow judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. We've said if you want to make a difference, you've got to be made different. So before I move on, I want, to, I want to take a magnifying glass over this idea of the gospel because we've got to get this super clear. Otherwise, the rest of this section is just going to be lost. Where does lasting change happen? Like out here or in here? What happens first? We've got to square with this. There's two ways to change your life outside in and then inside out. Outside in spirituality says, do right to become right. Inside out spirituality, the gospel, says, Jesus makes me right, so I will want to do right. You see the difference? Outside in spirituality says, Do this so that God will love me. Inside out spirituality says, Do this because God loves me. Do you see the difference? It's very important to understand that distinction. Here's why I bring this up, and this is why this is so important God doesn't just want you to not sin, that's not the gospel. The gospel is not a more well-behaved life. God doesn't want you to just not sin. That's too small for God. God doesn't just want you to not sin. He wants you to not want to sin. (laughs) Every parent knows what I'm talking about right now. I don't want you to clean your room. I want you to want to clean your room. God is not content just to change your behavior. A cattle prod can do that. Like you just reward the good behavior and the punish the bad behavior. God's not content with that. He's not some wrist-slapping, ruler-wielding killjoy. He loves you and he wants you. So updated imagery from this text. All those words that we talked about. God doesn't want you to hide your porn. He wants you to stop running to it. God doesn't want you to lie about going to a strip club. He wants you to not even want to go. God doesn't want you to clear your search history before you get caught. He wants you to live in freedom from shame. Here's the point. The gospel is an invitation to a changed heart. Follow Jesus and be made. And I know those are really strong examples, but they're kind of the cultural equivalent of what Peter is talking about here. And his word to us, 2,000 years later, different culture, different time, different place, but the same rebellious heart, this duplicitous thing in me. God is not content with outside in spirituality. But here's what I've noticed. So many Christians are. So many Christians just want to behave. And they expect others to behave. And Peter goes, That's not how you make a difference. That's not what we're talking about here. That's not the gospel. We've confused being nice with being made new. We've confused having an opinion with having conviction. We do Christian things. We say the Christian words and we smile, trying our best to act right so that we can be right. And unintentionally, we have inverted the gospel. If you want to make a difference out there, you've got to be made right in here. So where do we go, Peter? Like, give me something. Now here's where the negative becomes the positive. Peter's going to give us four difference makers, translated probably in your translations, four imperative verbs, these four commands. You want to make a difference? These are difference makers. This is how you do it. Difference maker number one, self-controlled sobriety. And that means more than just the booze. Self-controlled sobriety This comes up in verse 7. Here's what he says. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, it's not hard to see that Peter is drawing a direct contrast from where he was just a few verses ago. Drunk and passed out on the floor, sober-minded. And in typical, like, bottom-line Nuts and bolts, Peter fashion. He just says, be this, be that. Here's what I love most about this. Like, this is so far from the Peter that we see in the Gospels. Self-controlled and sober. I don't know. Like, I kind of imagine the other disciples reading this letter at some other house church meeting at some other point in the empire, and they're like, get a load of this. This is Peter telling us to be self-controlled. Like, dude, we hung out for three years and this is not you. Like, come on, man. I'll never deny Jesus. Never deny him. Who is he? Never heard of the man. Don't know who you're talking about. cock doo Peter, right? Not the most level-headed of the bunch. If there's anybody that needs a dose of self-control and a bit of self-sobriety, it's you. And I draw a lot of comfort from that because I go, man, there's hope for me. I could get there. Peter knows that Like him, most of us, when faced with the imminent reality of suffering, will do one of two things. Follow me on this. Most of us will err in one of two directions when faced with the reality of suffering. Option number one, we will obsess over the events of our world tracking down conspiracy theories and getting wrapped around the axle of the news cycle, getting sucked up in the undertow of our culture and grip it so hard. Or we withdraw from our world, wishing we could retreat to a distant hilltop, gaze longingly at the skies and contemplate the one-day glories of heaven. And so Peter's corrective insight here is, yes, simply this world is going to make you feel desperate Pay close attention to where your desperation is driving you. Does it drive you to discouragement and despair and anger? Does it drive you to disconnection, discouragement, disillusionment? Or and then here's what Peter's thinking, what he's hoping and what he calls us to. Does it drive you to prayer? Be self-controlled, sober-minded. Why? For the sake of your prayers. One commentator I read puts it this way. Christians should be alert to the events of our world, evaluating them correctly in order to pray more intelligently. So let's put this together. Peter alerts us to the end of all things. Calls us to be sober minded, self controlled, and then he supplies the reason for doing it for the sake of your prayers, which kind of begs the question like, am I watching the news? Am I scrolling my social feeds? Am I doing whatever so I can pray better? Mm -hmm. Is that why I'm soaking in this? Is that what I'm looking for? Is that what I'm hoping to build? A better prayer life? Or am I looking for ammo? Am I looking for confirmation that that person is just as off of their rocker as I thought they were? Am I looking for justification for feeling the way that I feel, being angry about what I'm angry about, believing what I already believe to be true? So hear me, this is where this gets super practical. If you find yourself getting bitter at people, it is probably time you start praying for people. And maybe your first prayer is, Jesus, help me, because I don't want to do that. (laughs) That's a good prayer to pray. Jesus, center me on you, because I'm out of my mind, and I'm out of balance. Connected to that, difference maker number two, sincere love. Again, Peter, of all people, sincere love. Hmm. Here's what he says. This shows up in verse eight. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins. That last phrase. Since love covers a multitude of sins. We're going to get to that in just a second. Because that's the beautiful part of this. But the command, he says, keep loving. This is like saying, that fire that you started a long time ago... to it. Why? Because love, like fire, has a tendency to go out if it's left unattended. Jesus warned about this way back in Matthew 24, 12, when he said, because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. Tell me that's not an insightful prophecy for our time. This is Jesus saying, look, the world is going to get worse, and when it does, people are going to forget the potency of love. Because everything's going crazy, people are going to look for other things to fix things. Why is that? Because when times get tough, people become targets. And so Jesus and Peter here urge, don't let that happen to you, church. The world will grow cold and less loving, but not you. Tend to the coals of love's fire so that others may see Jesus in you. And here's where we miss it, guys, just to put a button on it. Judgment. Judging others, judgment, leads to cynicism, and cynicism leads to apathy, and apathy kills love. Not in the church should not be that way. So what's with the phrase at the end where he says, love covers a multitude of sins? What does that mean? Does it mean like, just be a loving person, and you can atone for your own sins? You should know that that's not right, because that goes against everything the New Testament teaches. You don't earn your salvation. This isn't about you making up your own stuff. What's he mean? When Peter says, love covers a multitude of sins, he's actually quoting the second line of Proverbs 10, verse 12. Proverbs 10, verse 12 is a two-line poem. And for the grammatically inclined among you, it's called a couplet. There you go. It's a two-line poem. And what Peter's hoping will happen is he's quoting the second line, and he's hoping that our memories will jog, and we go, oh, yeah. I remember that one, and he's hoping we're going to remember the first line. Anybody want to recite it? No takers? It's all good. Don't worry about it. Here's what it says. Proverbs 10, 12. says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. It's the image of shaking up a pop bottle, loving the conflict, living for the drama, being a meddler, and here's Peter saying, look, you've got two ways to live your life in a world gone crazy. You shake up the pop bottle, you can be loving. Your call. And I know what some of you are thinking, because I think the same way. As I go, eh, sounds soft. <laughs> Sometimes I don't want to love him. I want to kick him in the face. Here's the thing. In saying that love covers a multitude of sins, Peter is not minimizing sin. He's not abdicating or acquitting him. He's not saying that, well, there's no wrong. No, no, no. Just sweep it under some big cosmic rug. He's like, no, there is wrong. There's profound wrong in our world, around us, wrong in us, wrong done to us. And what Peter wants us to see is it's what you do with the wrong that matters, You're going to see a lot of wrong if you're walking through the world with your eyes open. What do you do with it? Do you forgive the wrong or do you use it as ammo, just like holding on to it? Think how freeing it would be if we could all just understand that we are all profoundly morally jacked up. (laughs) Nobody has this thing called life right. It doesn't release us from our obligation to love others. Here's his point. Love often chooses to suffer in silence rather than stir the pot. Love patiently bears the weight of heavy things, 1 Corinthians 13, 7. Love is more eager to overlook a fault rather than draw attention to it or spread rumors about it. You have a choice. You can cover up wrongs with love or you can leverage wrongs as a weapon. But Christians, Christians love eagerly. Why? Because we are loved eagerly. Difference maker number three. And this is, again, this is super practical, this one remarkable hospitality tell me our world doesn't need this right now remarkable hospitality this comes up in verse 9 here's what he says show hospitality to one another and we're good oh no there's that last like two words in there show hospitality one another without grumbling. And that last little bit means without muttering under your breath or going like, oh yeah, it's those people. Oh gosh. (laughs) Why? Because that's what we do. We picture hospitality too simply. We think hospitality is like a welcome mat, a vacuumed floor. But Christian hospitality, according to what Peter's driving at here, has its roots much deeper. You remember, don't you? Like, right before he went to the cross, one of Jesus' last teachings... Before he died, one of his last teachings was surprisingly about hospitality. And he said, look, if you welcome them, that's the same you've welcomed me. You give them a glass of water, that's like giving me one. Here's the principle. I have only received Christ to the extent that I will receive others. People who can't benefit me, people who are hard for me to love, People who inconvenience me. People who will slap me in the face. People who never say thank you, but you are still going to serve nonetheless. People who, tying back to Peter, actually might make me grumble and mutter under my breath, why are they so important? Why can't we just write them off and go, deuces? Because that's who we are. In taking initiative, which is hospitality, it's not reactive, it's taking initiative. In taking initiative to love thankless people, we model God's initiative to love thankless us. Bluntly, when you choose to follow Jesus, you release your right to social superiority. It doesn't exist. And that's one of the most missiological choices you can make for a lost world. Um, recently, I've been reading a book, and I would commend it to you. Um, it's by Rosaria Butterfield, and it's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. I love the title. I'm hooked already. She has a wonderful insight about hospitality, and here's what she says The secret to Christian hospitality is spending enough real time with people so they know you well enough to know how you handle disagreement and difference. This really shouldn't trip up Christians. Christians have a theology and worldview for calling strangers to the table and then sitting there long enough to be both earthly and spiritual good. Christians have a theology of difference and diversity. Next one. Now, watch this. What trips up Christians is this. Too much time waging war with people and ideas on social media and too heavy a reliance on church programs to filter strangers, weeding out the creepy ones... <laughs> And bringing the nice to, to the table, the nice and safe ones. This post-Christian world won't stand for this. We shouldn't either. And then she nails it out of the park. Get close enough to put the stranger, or to the stranger to put her hand into the hand of the savior. Oh. Can you do it? You ready? <laughs> Taking initiative to welcome others with the same enthusiasm that I would welcome Jesus. That's what we're called to. Difference maker number four. And I want to talk about what we're going to do with this. Difference maker number four. Selfless serving. Take a look in verse 10 and 11. Selfless serving. He says, as each has received a gift. Now what that means, really quick, that means that if you are here today and you are a Christian, you have confessed Christ. You've asked for forgiveness for your sins and confessed the sufficiency of Christ. If that's you, upon your conversion, you were given a spiritual gift. You can find a lot about them in the New Testament. Peter's going to give us a very quick overview of like two categories of spiritual gifts here in just a second. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. How? As good stewards of God's varied grace. And then here's his categories. He says, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Why is that so important, Peter? In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, I just love what this says here. And this is me being personally, because you know I'm a teaching pastor. It's what I do. This strikes at one of the like, biggest misconceptions about the western church or just like an inverted church that the one person or the group of people that we pay are the ones doing the work you've heard that before right the 80 20 principle like 80 percent of the people or wait 80 percent of the work is done by 20 percent of the people and Peter's going -uh. nah that's not true Peter's corrective is like, yes, there are some that are called by God into vocational service in the life of a local church, but according to Peter here, you weren't saved to sit. You've got a gift that's been given from God, and you're supposed to use it. And then, helpfully, if not oversimply, Peter then divides these gifts into two categories, those who speak and those who serve. Those who speak, so in our context, that's those who preach or teach regularly, do this, it says... As oracles of God, what does that mean? Does it mean we're never wrong? Does it mean, no, 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 no. What he means is that we view God's word as the source of what we say and the boundary of what we say. And as a preaching pastor, I love this. It means that if I say anything on Sunday morning from right here that's of any value, it's not because I'm clever, it's because this is meaningful. I got nothing else you don't really care about my opinion because I don't care about my opinion. What you need is this, not me. Where this speaks, I speak, and where this stops, I stop. God's word is both the source and the boundary for those who preach and teach. He also says then, for those that are service-oriented, those gifts, right now we've got our meal ministry that's helping out up in the Family Life Center, making dessert plates and everything for our reception. That's who he has in mind here, others using their gifts in profound ways. And his point is he says, do this as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. What he means is if you do anything in the local church on your own strength, you're going to run out. Service done for one's status or reputation or to feel better about myself or to answer some like inner need for significance. He goes, yeah, you're not going to (laughs) last. You do this in the strength that God supplies. Because worse, it draws attention to me rather than to the Lord. And here's the thing. He wraps it up. He says, gifts in both categories are done for God's glory. So that's the text. Here's the problem. On my own, I am none of those things. <laughs> like, not even close. And so I look at those difference makers and I go, oh, man. self-controlled and sober-minded If you know me well, that is hardly true. I swing from gripping the world too tightly and then heading off to the words of my imagination to a trout stream that nobody else knows about. (laughs) Self-controlled, sober-minded. Sincerely loving. Well, I, I think I genuinely do love people, I think. But sometimes I do it to avoid a fight. Anybody else do that? And that's not loving, that's just conflict avoidance. There's a big difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking. How about remarkably hospitable? Welcoming someone who will slap you in the face. <sighs> Most times I got to bite my lip and just go, ah, I don't know about that. Like I want to fight the urge to go, oh, really? Wham. Turn the other cheek, okay. You know. Anybody else like that? <laughs> Thank you. Solidarity. Selfless serving. And this is, again, it's just me being vulnerable for you guys. Like, guys, I am an affirmation junkie. It is like my drug of choice. That's my poison. Like, it comes from this core need to be loved. Like, I have to be liked at all costs. It's this terrible thing in there, and I can't shake it. It's just in there. And so it chokes my ability to serve selflessly. So here's where we're going to go. If Peter says these four things are difference makers, and if I need to be made different before I can make a difference, here's where I want to go for our last couple of minutes. You have one of three prayers that you can pray this morning. And I want you to think about this. You can do it as our band comes in just a second to close us with a last song. You can do it, sit in your seat. You can stand and sing and still have these words in your head. Here are your three options. First off, You can pray forgive me because maybe you've you've heard the first half of that whole section and you go yeah I'm, i'm still living with some of that stuff and it's guilt and i'm ashamed of it and i hate it and i've never ever felt the forgiveness of the lord for my sin and so your first prayer is lord forgive me for breaking your heart and breaking your law forgive me forgive me i need your forgiveness that could be your prayer You know, in the prayer, maybe you can pray thank you, because maybe you're experiencing the Lord's forgiveness over something that, like, you've been hanging on to for a long time, and you just go, God, I just want to say thank you for being so profoundly good to me, for making me different, and, like, for working on me. Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your holiness that's mixed with love in this inexplicable way that just makes me go, ah. So you can pray, forgive me. You can pray, thank you. Or maybe there's this last one, and this may cover most of us. It does me. Help me. And that can take a lot of forms. That can say, help me to keep the past in the past. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. The life I live in the flesh, Christ, help me to remember what you've done for me. Or maybe you can, See those four difference makers and you go, well, I'm good for three out of the four, but man, that one kind of hits a little home. Lord, help me to be hospitable. Help me to be loving. Help me to put the sword away and believe that mercy can do its work. Help me, help me. So forgive me, thank you, and help me. We're gonna pray in just a second, but before we do, I do wanna invite you. If you have never been made right, if you've never asked for forgiveness for your sin, you need to know there's a God who loves you deeply and he stands with open arms and he wants to welcome you home. Today could be the day where you don't have to live in the fear of hell and punishment and separation anymore, but you can live with the hope of heaven that is yours because of Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord, did you say thank you so much (laughs) for all that you have done, for your forgiveness, for your grace, and for your mercy, your kindness toward us, which we do not deserve. Lord, you are holy. You cannot tolerate sin, and we are steeped in it. But Lord, in your mercy and in your grace, you gave us a Savior dying on a cross, pouring out his blood for us. And so we say, thank you, thank you, thank you. And Lord, we do just say, help us. We know that our world is burning. And we have living water. Lord, help us. Make us different so that we can make a difference in this place, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.